In his gospel account, Luke retells the stories and teachings of Jesus. We see a picture of the Holy Spirit at work fulfilling the Father's redemption plan through the life and ministry of his Son. He reminds us that the gospel is a matter of the heart, the inner person, not mere external religion. The gospel is a call to reevaluate everything in the world according to God's perspective, not our own. To value mercy over justice, humility over prestige, to value favor with God over favor with people. It's a message of peace, an offering of forgiveness, and an invitation to enter the kingdom of God. The Gospel of Luke. So I hope you've already opened your Bible and, or your instrument that you're uh, following along to Luke. Uh, chapter uh, 21. You can see on the screen that the name of the uh, sermon is uh, Time is Short, Jesus is Coming Soon. Uh, This is a part of what is called, by those who teach the Bible, the Olivet Discourse. And we find it in three places in the Bible. Luke chapter 21 that we're going to study, Matthew chapter 24, and also Mark chapter 13. And what I'm going to do is a little unique in how I'm going to handle this because I'm going to teach only what Luke has to say about this. He wrote this after Jesus rose from the dead, obviously, and all that, and he wrote the book of Acts. And I think that this version of the Olivet Discourse fits better than the others do at this particular time in our history. And so we're going to see what Luke thinks we should know about what's happening regarding the second coming of Christ and also regarding another prophecy that I'm going to show you him fulfilling here in a few minutes. I will use Matthew and Mark a little bit, but we're going to look at Luke's version of what happened, and we're going to see how it fits into our lives. And so we're going to be starting in verse 5, and if you look in your Bibles, it says... Uh, some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. Now, here's something that you need to know if you don't. This is the second temple. The first temple was Solomon's temple, and it was a beautiful temple, and it was destroyed by the Babylonians. This is Herod's temple. And when Luke, when Jesus was teaching the disciples at this temple, the temple had been being built for over 50 years. And it wasn't completed completely uh, until the construction had gone on for like 82 or 83 years. And it was a, a wonder of the world. It was the most amazing sight you could ever imagine. And the disciples and those hearing Jesus talk about this could not imagine it ever not existing. They just couldn't imagine that. It was, it was God's place after all. This is where God's uh, person uh, was in the Holy of Holies. It, there's no way that anybody was impregnable and beautiful. There's no way that anybody could destroy this temple. And so that's, the disciples are thinking that. They're looking at it, and they're looking at this incredible temple. And so they, they said to Jesus, uh, pointed out to Jesus, uh, the beautiful stones and pointed out that many people had given money to build the temple. And then Jesus probably shocks them a little bit. Look at verse 6. As for what you see here, Jesus says, the time will come when not one stone will be left in another 
every one of them will be thrown down. In Matthew's gospel, it reads, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to see uh, to him to call his attention to its buildings. Uh, and Jesus said, do you see all these things? Oh, truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left in another. Everyone will be thrown down. And in Mark's version, uh, he points out as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples in particular said to Jesus, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Now, it would be almost impossible to exaggerate what this temple looked like. The historian of the day by the name of Josephus uh, wrote about it in his book, Wars of Jews, book 5, chapter 5, and I've edited quite a bit for time, but here's his description. Now, the outward face of the temple was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight, and at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. But this temple appeared to strangers when they were at a distance like a mountain covered with snow. They'd take all of these big blocks and they had, they had made them incredibly white. And they, would, they appeared at a distance like a mountain covered with snow for as to those parts of it that were not gilt, not covered with gold, they were exceedingly white. Now today in Jerusalem, you can go to an excavation that takes you on the street level in the time of Christ and see some of these huge stones as big as boxcars that were pushed off the wall in A.D. 70. The destruction was the result of the Jews' rejection of the Messiah. And you might want to make a little note uh, in your Bibles or to go back and look at chapter 19, verse 44, because we've already studied it, but that's exactly uh, the reason the temple was going to be destroyed, uh, and it was going to be a, 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 literally a punishment from God. So this had to... I like this word, discombobulate the disciples. And so they asked, verse 7, when will these things happen? In other words, when will the temple be destroyed? And, and what will be the sign that they're about to take place? Well, to begin with, I'm somewhat impressed that the disciples did not just totally doubt Jesus on the point. But they did want to know when is it going to happen? What are the signs? And so here's what he said in verse 8 to the disciples. Watch out that you're not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming I am he, meaning I'm the Messiah. And, Jesus said, the time is near. Do not follow them. Do not become one of their followers. Oh, Josephus tells us uh, that even around this time, just after, even after Jesus rose from the dead, there were already false prophets and false messiahs around. And we might even ask ourselves the question, are there not such today? The Apostle Paul spent three years in 
a place called Ephesus, teaching the church in Ephesus, the Christians in Ephesus, for three years. In Acts chapter 20, we see a conversation he had with the elders of the church in Ephesus as he was leaving now to go on another missionary journey. And here's what he said, Acts 20, 29. I know that after I leave, Paul says, savage wolves, he's not talking about animals, will come in among you and will not spare the flock. I love the word flock because that's the word for Christians here. Uh, you know, uh, G- Jesus calls us his flock. God calls us his flock. Even from your own number, men will rise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stop warning each of you night and day with tears. So they had good teaching, they knew the scriptures, and they knew what to watch out for. But now let's go back to the disciples. Jesus is talking to them about what's going to happen in AD 70. It's on verse 9, we look at in Luke. And when you hear of wars, Jesus says, and uprisings. He was thinking specifically, they didn't know that at this time, but he was teaching them because they would realize that when this Jewish revolt happened of 68, 69, and 70. And he says, so when you hear of wars and uprising, do not be frightened. You could translate it terrified, same word. Don't be terrified. These things, that is the destruction of the temple, must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Now, that's a divine must. God's sovereign plan must be fulfilled, and it's a purposeful plan. Wars and rumors of wars, wars and rebellion. There will never be any lasting peace on earth before Jesus returns. Nevertheless, since we know God is in charge, none of these things should perplex us the way it will perplex those who don't know God. And then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, verse 10, and kingdom against kingdom. Can you think of any nations rising against nations? A man by the name of Putin who decided in his greed for other countries uh, goes into a country and decimates it and kills the innocents. Can you, you think of other possibilities in the world even today where that could be happening at any time? And then you look at verse 11. He says there will be great earthquakes. Anybody heard of an earthquake recently? I checked before I came to church. I said it wrong in the first service uh, just to see in Turkey how many uh, have the dead they're saying. They don't know how many really. And I said it was around 3,300. So I've been told that you're kind of wrong there. It's like thousands. <laughs> and, and it's amazing. I, I watch some of the video and you see some of these incredible buildings just crumble and you know that all kinds of people were just totally destroyed and gone at that point in time. But there's been earthquakes like this all through history. This isn't the first time, nor will it be the last times. And then it talks about famines and pestilences, pestilences. I wonder what that word means, plague or something, in various places, and fearful events, and even great signs from heaven. Now, earthquakes. Earthquakes are messengers to remind us how unstable the earth is. Every earthquake should remind us that there will be an end to the earth as we know it. 
famine usually historically follows a devastating earthquake. And how often do we hear someone on a newscast say, well, the next time there's a plague, we now know that we won't do this or we will do this. There's going to be another plague? Well, yes. There have been many signs in the heavens. Uh, some have written whole books practically predicting a day to the end because of a certain color of the moon or the nearness of a comet that almost hits the earth. All of these happenings Jesus is talking about should remind us today of why we are still on this planet after becoming a follower of Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 12, but before all this, now remember he's talking to his immediate disciples, it's before the cross, he hasn't gone to the cross yet, they have a total wrong, totally wrong conception of what they thought he would do, but he's telling them, but before all this, they, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues for trials and put you in prison. And you'll be brought before kings and governors all on account of my name. And then verse 13, what a sentence. So he's talking about this horrible thing, the persecution that's going to happen uh, as Christians. And then he says, and so you will bear testimony to me. That's a very important statement. Because that's what we're all about. That's what life's all about for a Christian, to be a testimony to the goodness of God, uh, to, the, uh, to be fruitful Christians, full of the joy of the Holy Spirit, in regardless of the perplexities of what's happening in our world. When the Apostle Paul was stopped on his way to uh, persecute Christians, a man by the name of Ananias was told by God to go to Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, and to tell him all he must suffer for the gospel. And no doubt at first, you can read it in the book of Acts, when God first told him to go, he says, there's no way I'm going. This guy's crazy. He's the most dangerous man on the planet right now. I'm not going. And God says to him, it's recorded in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, the Lord said to Ananias, it's very strong, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I mean, when you start reading this stuff, you think, well, I, I thought if I became a Christian, life would be just like Disneyland or something. It's just going to be wonderful. No, we're in a war. And as the body of Christ, that's the name of the church, the body of Christ, we need to realize we're in a spiritual war, and the war has an ending to it. Uh, Paul was a great example. In, in chapter 26 of the book of Acts, Paul had healed a man, and uh, he got arrested for doing good, but he got arrested, and he was put in great danger. This might have been the end of his life. He came before King Agrippa and, and Bernice, and Felix was there. And they started arguing in a way back and forth. And Paul gave clear picture of the gospel. And at one point, uh, Festus got so upset, he said, Paul, your great learning is driving you insane. And Paul goes on to say, well, no, I'm not mad. And uh, I would like you to be like me except for these chains. He was in chains. So what do we do about all this? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 14. He's talking to the disciples, but also to us. He says, but make up your mind 
not to worry beforehand how you'll defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. We, all through the book of Acts, we see that over and over. In Mark chapter 13, verse 11, it reads the words of Jesus, Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. This is a powerful promise for those who are arrested and brought before judges and others who will try to eliminate them from society. The promise is that the words that come to mind are God's words inspired by the Holy Spirit, who is God. But even to bring it closer to home for us, verse 16, you'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they'll put some of you to death. And everyone will hate you because of me. Now, some of us here and watching online have been rejected even by their own children. There may be some here, almost certainly are some, or online who have been betrayed by friends. It's not uncommon for even a wife or a husband to be killed in some places in the world today because they become Christians. Actually, I talked to somebody recently whose mother was killed, who living in Florida, who changed religions and and was killed because her mother became a Christian. That's what I'm talking about just like a year or so ago, not, not uh, way back in the times here. Hatred of Jesus can cause some to become the opposite of what they used to be. <coughs> Excuse me. In John's gospel, Jesus says this, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. There's a story going around on the internet that I um, delved into a little bit, mainly because it happened in Canada. Uh, Canada is fast uh, becoming one of the most uh, uh, non-Christian countries in the world. I would say that that seems to be the government's desire in that country pretty clearly. The story, some of you know the story, uh, the story is about a 16-year-old young man in Renfrew, Ontario. I used to be in a police division just near there one time uh, in my life, working for the provincial police. And uh, here's this young man. He's 16 years old, and he's going to a Catholic high school, a Catholic high school. He says he's born again, and he's going to a Catholic high school, and he complains about the guys who were saying they were now girls going into the women's washrooms. And then in the classroom one day, he mentioned in a Catholic high school that God made uh, two genders, male and female, and that's it. And they're permanent. And so the a government arrested him. And I found out now that he can't go to any school. He's been arrested and banned from schools because of this subversive thing. They're, ca they're calling him a bully. Now, this makes this a little more real, doesn't it? Uh, if the, uh, is, is that you used to be a teacher? More real, that's not good grammar, is it? No, okay, sorry. This makes it realer? <laughs> no, not that either. Well, you know, I didn't finish high school, so you ought to forgive me. Anyhow, Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. 
Jesus said, if you belong to the world, it would love you of its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you, this is for us, out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Some may say, well, you know, I'm a Christian, the world doesn't hate me. Well, do they know? <laughs> but here's something that is really, really important. Verse 18, this is so encouraging. But not a hair of your head will perish. Now, that isn't a verse for a joke. Instead, it's a wonderful metaphor of how much God cares for us. We've already studied it in Luke 12. It's very encouraging. Luke 12, verse 4 reads, Jesus speaking, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. Are not five sparrows sold for just two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Take heart, little flock, for I give you the kingdom. It's just wonderful how much God loves us. So what do we do about it? Well, verse 19 tells us. Verse 19 is really something. It's, it's a command. The grammar is very strong. Verse 19, stand firm and you'll win life. Now, we all know the saying that, you know, what would a profit a man if he, you know, gained the whole world and lost his life. We've all heard that. Lost his soul, lost his soul. That's the word life. That's the word life here is the word for soul. And so actually, this is a strong command that says to stand firm and you will gain your souls. And then in verse 20, now the reason Jesus is teaching the disciples this is that they're going to be uh, teaching others who are going to be around in A.D. 70, and they need to know this. So, verse 20, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that a desolation is near. Destruction is to come. Now, in chapter 19, when we studied that, Jesus warned that this would happen. But here in verse 21, it tells us this. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and leave those in the country. Uh, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment. Punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. In other words, this is the result of disobeying God. When Titus, the Roman general, surrounded the city, the Christians remembered what Jesus said. They had been well taught. And they fled the city and the area completely. But the Jewish population that had not received Jesus headed into the impregnable walls of the city, resulting in a terrible slaughter that is here called a judgment. And we can read of it in the prophets of the Old Testament. You know, you may look at something like this and say, that's just terrible that something like that happened. But Jesus lets us know constantly, and the Old Testament lets us know constantly that God warns us when we're going in the wrong direction. Amos chapter 3, verse 7, God speaking through this prophet, surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. 
Now, I'm certainly not a prophet, but I am doing something prophetic here that I can prove from Scripture. There's some terrible things to come, and we need to know how to act because God is in control. It isn't happening randomly. Everything that's happening is happening purposely, and it's God's purpose being fulfilled even if those who are doing some of the terrible things don't even realize that. So verse 23 in our Scripture says, How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There'll be great distress in the land and wrath uh, against this people. There'll be so many innocents uh, killed. And you know what I mean by innocence here. We know we're all sinners. But we have a neighbor across the street that moved in a little while ago who escaped from the Ukraine and with his family. And so I've talked to him about this a little bit. And, and I've read about the people uh, that have been in tra- underground trenches, like uh, caves and stuff, uh, just terrified because uh, they can hear when the missiles are coming. And if one of them hits direct, they're all gone. It's a terrible time. And that's the kind of thing that happened in AD 70, only they didn't have missiles. Uh, Verse 23, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There'll be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We live in what is called, biblically speaking, times of the Gentiles. Back to Josephus. In his history, he tells us that 1,100,000 were killed and 97,000 taken captive in AD 70. And the people who study these things and check out people like Josephus said he probably uh, missed, the number's probably not right, it was probably worse than that. One of the um, commentaries I use because of the writer's emphasis on the Greek text uh, was written in 1946. Lenski's his name, and he's he just is brilliant in the Greek language. And uh, talking about this passage, he says that this was the beginning of the times of the Gentiles, which is obvious, and I agree. But he then states that the Jews will never have their lamb back again. And, of course, this makes me smile because it was only two years after Lenski wrote his brilliant commentary that the Jews regained their land. And some of you uh, will be visiting next year on our trip to Israel. And you'll be glad you did. I'll take time, either at the end of our exposition of Luke or during a Wednesday service, to teach again from the Old Testament book of Daniel much more detail and timing of all that has happened and what is to come. But Jesus is now going to talk. He's going to leave the past in AD 70 to tell what happens before the second coming. So from verse 25 to the end of the chapter, he's emphasizing the second coming. Some of the same things will be happening, wars and rumors of wars and all of that. That will always be happening. But he's going to talk how much more will happen uh, before the second coming. Look at verse 25. He says, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Now, in biblical prophecy, the sea symbolizes chaos or or stands for a source of incredible fear. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 17, 
uh, God speaking through him, uh, said, Woe to the many nations that rage. They rage like the raging sea. Woe to the peoples who roar. They roar like the roaring of great waters. And that's happening today all over the world where people are fearful and they, they, everything seems to be falling apart and nothing seems to be going right. But he's painting an even deeper picture than that. Uh, verse 26, he says, people will faint from terror. Now, the word faint here is the wrong word uh, from the Greek to the English, although if you check out all kinds of translations, the majority use faint. There's some that use uh, the way it should be. Now, I fainted. Lots of you have fainted. We've had people faint in the service. I mean, I've listened to some of my sermons. I'm not surprised. But, uh, you know, so uh, that kind of thing. And when somebody faints, you kind of wake them up. And, and for the most part, they need to lie down and sleep or something, that they'll be fine. But the word for faint here in the Greek language means to breathe out and to stop breathing, which we call death. And it says some people will faint, will die from terror apprehensive is what is, come, what is coming on the world for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. That's happening in the world today. There's, there's lots of incidences in places, well, like the Ukraine, but other places in the world where people are so frightened they have heart attacks, they die. And then in Matthew's uh, gospel, uh, he writes, immediately, these are the words of Jesus, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give us light and the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. He is describing something that we can't even imagine except that we're learning more and more about the heavens and the stars and the comets and all of these things. There are going to be things that happen uh, right near the uh, final time before Jesus comes again that are going to be absolutely terrifying. But here's the message for us. No matter what happens, we can be fearless. In fact, when we see any of these signs or the continuing signs, such as wars and rumors of wars and such, this should cause us to be joyfully, I'm not talking about silliness, joyfully expectant because we know God is in charge and our future is secure and it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I mean, I would like to... I'd like to see a, a great God-caused revival spread worldwide, and I pray for that. It would mean countless thousands, maybe millions would be saved. But in the meantime, I'm not stressing out because of the terrible governments in the world or the wars or possible plagues or earthquakes or tornadoes, and I could go on and on. All that is happening confirms to me that God is in control, and I have nothing to worry about. Oh, I want to be a good citizen. I intend to vote and to work hard at telling others about Jesus. But my hope is in God, not elections or any kind of global event. And then in verse 27, Jesus goes on to say, and at that time, at that time, they, now the, the idea here under the language is they, the whole world will see me coming on a cloud. The whole world will see the Son of Man. Now, this used to be a controversial uh, verse, even in my time, where people would say, well, we can't imagine how that could happen, and they're coming, trying to come up with all kinds. How could everybody in the world see? Well, we don't have that problem today uh, at all. 
I mean, it didn't matter if you were in uh, Russia or China or Canada or South America or uh, if you were living in India. Uh, wherever you were, it didn't matter. In real time, all at once, we saw that balloon. And so we have no, <laughs> no problem knowing that uh, they will see the Son of Man. When Jesus comes in a cloud with power and great glory, the whole world will see this. And these things, Jesus said, when these things begin, all these signs begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. I mean, this is so exciting. It's sort of like, you know, you're watching the Super Bowl. I hope you are. But no, never mind. I'm not going to tell you who's going to win. But you're watching the Super Bowl, and uh, it's a tie game. There's two minutes left. Uh, and now you're down to just seconds left. And it's a tie game. And you want your team to win. And then Mahone, I mean, the quarterback, throws this ball. And just as the clock ticks over, it's caught and they won, and you're standing, and oh, look at this, this great sign, they won. I mean, that's literally, I mean, that may seem silly to some, but when we see these things happening, there should be an excitement within us that causes us to tell everybody we can about Jesus. But what we do often is instead we're trying to figure out all the little details. Acts chapter 1, you know it really well. Jesus is risen from the dead. He's meeting with the disciples and all the others who have become followers and teaching for about 50 days. And then there's this one incident. It's recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. It goes on like this. So when they, Jesus and all of the disciples, met the risen Christ together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They had totally the wrong idea. Are we going to take back America? Are we going to take back Jerusalem? We're going to get rid of the Romans? And then we're going to be in charge. And Jesus said to them, it's not any of your business. It's not for you to know the times or dates. Don't try to figure that out. The Father has set these by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and even Samaria where you'd never want to go and even to the ends of the earth. Both Matthew and Mark's gospel say that we cannot know the exact time of Jesus' return. End of story. Mark 13, 32. Jesus says, but about that day or hour, no one no one knows, not even the angels in heaven. I don't even know, Jesus says, nor the Son. Only the Father knows. And then he tells them a parable. It's an obvious, easy-to-understand parable, verse 29. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. Now, the fig tree represents the Jews. The other trees represent the Gentiles. And so he says... Verse 30, when they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know the summer is near. This winter time, all the leaves have fallen off. The trees all look desolate. But then when the leaves start to come, wow, you know, summer is near. There's going to be fruit on the trees, all of this kind of thing. But even so, he says, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. That should really encourage us. Pastor Chuck Smith uh, used to, I can hear his deep voice. He used to say, do you want to know when Christmas is coming? When you see the Thanksgiving Day Parade, Christmas is coming. 
when we see all of these things happening, we know Jesus is returning. So while the world moans and groans in fear, we worship and look forward to who is coming, Jesus, the ruler of glory, our redeemer. Now look at verse 32. This can be a little bit controversial. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, this generation certainly will not pass away until all these things have happened. So what's he talking about? Some would say, well, he's talking about the generation that's alive when Jesus comes. Well, that's kind of obvious, but that's not what he's... He's talking to his disciples here. What is he saying? He's, he's saying this generation of Jews and Gentiles is not a period of time, but a people. There'll be generation after generation after generation. There'll never be a time where there's no people on earth, and, uh, and uh, all, all these generations will continue on until he comes, and then everything will change. And then look at verse 33. Verse 33 reads, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I'm going to step back from the sermon just to say this. This is so important. It's so important that we know our Bibles. From Genesis to Revelation. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapter 5, Jesus said, for us, it's meant for us, he said, uh, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he says, truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a pen will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished, he said. Therefore, anyone who sets aside even the smallest bit of the law will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who practices and teaches the law will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then if you've been here for the last few weeks, you'll understand this part that he's saying now. He says, therefore, I want to tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the wrong teaching, hypocritical Pharisees and the scribes, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the reason that I talk about that is to talk about how important the word of God is. Right now in America, there's a particular pastor, an evangelical pastor, that has one of the largest congregations in the country at all kinds of different locations. He's extremely well-trained. His father was one of the best evangelical preachers ever. And uh, he has said very publicly, so there's no doubt about this, he said it very publicly. He said that we need to decouple the Old Testament from the New Testament. We don't need the Old Testament anymore. We can forget about that. It's all in the past. Forget the Ten Commandments, all that kind of thing. All we need is the New Testament because that's where the gospel is. And the sad part of that is not only should he be terrified at what Jesus says in the New Testament about somebody who lays aside even one of the laws, uh, that should be enough to stop it. But there are other pastors that are saying, that's a good idea. It's hard. I've taught through the book of Leviticus. That's hard to teach through. But it's God's word. We need to know what the Bible says. It tells us about the character of God. And to me, this is a way bigger problem than all of the government things and inflation and all those things. Uh, way bigger problem. Because we need to know God's word. God's word will be fulfilled. Jesus will come again. History as we know it will end. So now, what do we do about all this? Well, here it is, verse 34. 
Here it is. Be careful or... Two letters, O-R. If we're not careful, or will happen. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, uh, carousing. All sorts of evil is a very, very good way to translate the Greek words. Drunkenness. drunkenness. This, is he talking to Christians? Drunkenness. They were getting drunk in 1 Corinthians at the communion service. And then the worst thing of all, and the anxieties of life. Anxieties? We're not to be anxious about anything. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. You know, you hear people say, in heaven there'll be no tears. It actually doesn't say that. I think it's true. But it says that he'll wipe away every tear. And I think on the day of judgment, because Christians are going to be judged too, and, and, going to, and some of us who are not acting the way we should are going to have a lot of tears that he'll wipe away, and his grace will cover all that. But that's what it's talking about. And so it'll be just almost at first like you're in a trap, and then you'll find out what grace really is all about. You see, the Bible was not given just to increase our knowledge, but to guide our conduct. Not to only enlighten our minds, but to change our behavior. And then in verse 35, it says, For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. In other words, there'll be a suddenness here. We'll talk, we can talk about the rapture in another sermon, all that kind of stuff. But at the second coming, there'll be a suddenness, verse 36. Uh, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before Jesus, the Son of Man, with great, wonderful joy. That's the picture. How do we do that? Well, the Apostle Paul paints a picture of a soldier, a Roman soldier in Ephesians chapter 6. We call it the warfare chapter. He tells us about the schemes of the devil. And then he says, here's how you should dress every morning when you wake up. First thing you need is you need to put your helmet of salvation on because you need to get your thinking right, right from the beginning of the day. And then you need to guard your heart so you'll have the, uh, the breastplate of righteousness which will guard your hearts. And then you need to know the truth so you'll have to build a truth so you can tell people what God has to say. And then you'll put on your gospel shoes so that wherever you go, whatever the circumstances, whatever happens, you'll be able to tell others about the good news about Jesus. And then you will uh, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the arrows of the evil one. And then you're to grab the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Why do you do all that? So you can pray with all sorts of prayer. And Paul says even in that chapter, and pray even for me, he said, I need your prayer. We are to be men and women who pray. That's how we keep our stand. Now, this means we'll be able to hear a well done rather than away from me, all you evildoers. This means we are able to joyfully look forward to that final judgment, the importance of prayer. Uh, remember in chapter 18, when we studied, it hasn't been that long ago, in Luke, uh, Jesus said, will faith be found on the earth when I come back again? 
So put on the full armor of God so as to be able to watch and pray. Now, the last two verses, here they are. Verse 37. Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening, he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. He's just like three days away from the most horrible thing you could ever imagine. But these people wanted to hear Jesus for themselves, and so they would be very glad they had met together to hear him. They had no idea that his life was about to end, nailed to a cross and placed in a tomb forever as far as they were concerned. But he rose from the dead. And we started the service today remembering the cost of our free salvation. The Bible tells us we're to remember his death until Jesus comes again. Jesus came the first time as predicted. A matter of fact, he fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament passages and verses uh, just with the, amazingly uh, perfectly, hundreds of them. And Jesus said the temple would be destroyed in AD 70. He made it very, very clear, and it was. And Jesus said he's coming again, and he is. Jerry Bridges, in one of his books, wrote, If we truly desire to live by grace, then we'll want to respond to that grace by seeking to live lives that are pleasing to God. And we simply cannot do that if we do not practice the disciplines necessary to develop Bible-based convictions. Jesus is coming again soon. And when Jesus comes... The question is, how will he find us? Am I spiritually lazy or wide awake? The book of Titus, chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. That means we can live that way. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah. And the last thing that John wrote, or last part of the last that he wrote before the revelation, the apostle John, 1 John 3, 3 reads, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So in other words... We can live a life full of hope because of the joy of the Holy Spirit who gives us that ability even in the face of tragedy and temporal upheaval. Jesus only had two or three days left before his horrible ordeal to put him on a cross and into a tomb. And he used those days to spend time in the temple and prayer while teaching what was going to happen in the near and far future, but ending in eternal happiness when the Words of judgment would be well done, good, and faithful ones. My favorite um, active preacher who I'll watch this afternoon when I go home, his morning services will be already online, uh, is 88-year-old, full of energy, Chuck Swindoll. He suggests that as history unfolds before us, we must put three words in the forefront of our minds. Three words, time is short. Let's pray. Father, I just uh, thank you for the, for the Bible. 
I thank you for the message of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Paul, and the rest. I thank you that that has all been preserved. I thank you for the words of Moses. I thank you for the way that you speak to us uh, through the Word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I know you've spoken to all of us in different ways. Father, there are some among us who are not thinking and living the way they should. And uh, for them, Father, just really convict them of your love. Oh, yes, convict them of your sin so they can see your love and live with that joy. There's others of us that are really going through difficulty and, and struggling somewhat. I pray that the word this morning will encourage those who are having troubles to know that you're working it all out for your glory and their good. And then there's some, Father, who are here today and online, I'm sure, that don't really know you yet. But if they're online listening or watching, or if they're here, they know about the gospel. And I urge you, if, you're, if that's you, then God's speaking to you right now. And he's saying, all you need to do is repent of your sins. Just admit you're a sinner and say, I don't want to do that anymore. And know that Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead and you're now free to obey him if you'll receive Jesus into your life. To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be children of God. And so all you have to do is pray. It doesn't have to be in any fancy theological words. Dear Jesus, just please help me. Come into my life. Change my life. I want to live for you. So Father, help us as a church to be the people who live for you all out. Start a revival even right here. It's got to start somewhere, Father, and spread all over the world. Give us another chance to reach many, many more people for the Lord Jesus Christ before you come. But then on the same side, Father, I want to say, come, Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray.